Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. We got the correct song playing and everything this time. Way to go, us. All right. I think that puts us at 61 for 62, which is a pretty good success rate. I'm Ethan Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California. I am Benjamin Castle also coming to you from South San Francisco, California. As Ethan implied, this is episode 62 of Americans Watching the Footy. This will be our semifinals preview. Before we get to that, though, because there are only two games to preview. We'll be doing post-mortems on the teams that were eliminated in the elimination finals. And we'll also do our general rundown of footy news from the past week. A lot of trade talk being accelerated from where we had things. Dunkley to Port heating up more. Confirmation of Tim Taranto going toward Richmond. And maybe there's more on that front for some Giants departures. We'll get to that when we talk about the Tigers in a bit. Carlton recently had their batch of delistings and re-signings. I was very happy to see Matthew Cottrell get two more years after he finally got consistent time and proved some of his ability this year with how he's been able to accelerate play and both set up and produce goals himself coming from the wings. Matthew Owies, Corey Durden, Josh Honey also getting more deals. But Liam Stalker delisted, and I know that is... A sad piece of news for a lot of Carlton fans. Remember, they traded up big time for Stalker at the draft a few years back, and he just never got a fair shot in the midfield. Now, which club's going to pick him up and turn him into the all-Australian the Blue Baggers think he is? Yeah, it's funny. You would go onto Instagram posts, like, every week. Anytime there was something about, like, top defenders and Carlton fans would go in hyping up Liam Stalker. I'm just going to preemptively link him to Essendon because it seems that everyone has been linked to Essendon as of late. What about Gold Coast? Uh, yeah, decent enough with, for some reason, their decision to pursue Jason Johannesson. Maybe something about Taron Thomas as well. I know that his situation at North hasn't been great the past year. His personal life has not been the easiest as of late with what he's been dealing with in terms of tragedies in his family this past year. I don't know how much to read into little things like social media comments. All that stuff gets hyped up too much, but we're doing our part just by talking about it, really, because that's what podcasters do. But the biggest piece of news coming out of this week, other than the results of games, is about how we take in the footy. Foxtel and Seven have signed on for another seven more years at the end of their current deal. So this will run through 2031 now. There's going to be a big increase in Thursday night games. Looks like we might get that the first 15 rounds of the year. It's proven pretty popular in terms of 
ratings, maybe not as much with people getting to the grounds. I'm okay with this. I mean, we're used to Thursday night football here in the United States, and those don't tend to be the greatest games, but they get good viewership. I hate Thursday night NFL games for the most part, other than, you know, Thanksgiving, season opener. Thing is, the past couple years, they've been better games. I still don't like it. I'd rather have Thursday night college football. Which was fun this past week. It was great entertainment. A couple of really good games kick off the year, no pun intended. I know that some college football is shown on KO, but I'm not sure how much of the weeknight action you're going to get. Hopefully you guys were able to see the backyard brawl between West Virginia and Pittsburgh. I have a feeling you're not going to see much of Cal at all this year, though, because for most people, if you want to watch Cal, then it's probably because they're playing someone notable. Getting back to the AFL TV rights deal, there's going to be more of Fox Footy's own commentary being on games. So maybe we'll have multiple broadcast feeds from which a lot of people can choose. Not sure how that's going to affect things in terms of watch AFL. I imagine the default would be the Fox Footy feeds. And there's going to be more that's aired live in a lot of markets. They're keeping free-to-air games for the in-state teams for West and South Australia. Seems like Queensland might be getting a bit of a raw into the deal, though, in terms of stuff on delay. Not entirely sure with how it works in each of the states there. But the bottom line is we're going to see some more weeknight footy. And with this TV deal in tow, hopefully more financially can be put toward things like concussion research, better bargaining for the players, and hopefully a 19th and maybe a 20th team. A vote on the Tasmanian team may be happening as soon as the end of the month. I looked at the TV deal from a how-does-this-affect-me standpoint, and it seems like it won't affect Watch AFL much at all, which is good because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I honestly expect that there's going to be a bit of a price increase, but for what it provides, I'm more than okay with that. The streaming quality of Watch AFL compared to other streaming services, other sports streaming services specifically here in the United States is excellent. I've gone on about this. If we had to pay a little more for Watch AFL, that would be fine, so long as the quality of the product continues to be high. You know, I'm a believer that if something's expensive, it needs to be high quality, and Watch AFL is high quality, so if the price was raised, I'd bite the bullet on it. I'd prefer it stay at this price, so anyone listening, don't get any ideas. We know you're listening, Gil, and whoever your successor is going to be. Yeah, remember... This was one of the big items that Gil wanted to check off the list before he stepped down at the end of the year. In that way, success. One of the things that I tell people when they ask me about watching AFL matches is what a great deal watch AFL is. And I mean, again, if the price went up, I'd still use it, but I probably wouldn't be telling everyone it's such a great deal. So keep your prices the way they are and you get more free marketing from me. And me. And hey, remember, it's actually cheaper in the U.S. if if you get a club membership than just to pay for Watch AFL on its own. Yeah, I'll rip on a lot of things politically and financially in America right now, but the conversion rate and the strength of the American dollar, pretty good. So let's keep that up. Now watch us move to Australia within the next eight years. So if you listen to our So You Didn't Make the Finals episodes, you'll have an idea of the format of these postmortems for the teams that have been eliminated. It's easy because there are only two of them. We're going to do this after the semifinals this week as well, and after the preliminary finals. 
And I guess after the grand final. The only thing we're not going to have in this is like the Reddit feedback because that we kind of were able to do, you know, planned out over the course of a week. This is a little bit more prompt, but we basically look at team season, look at what went right, what went wrong. And I personally like to do that kind of relative to expectations. For example, if you were looking at Port Adelaide, as we did. Well, yeah, Ollie Wines is good. We knew that. Tell me something I didn't know. Well, it wasn't really Wines' year for them as much as it was All-Australian Connor Rosie, but that's beside the point. Ollie Wines has a very, very rectangular head. That's also beside the point. I guess we'll just do these in order of elimination. It's not like we need to do a whole randomizer thing for two teams. So we're going to start this off with Richmond, the loser of the, well, it's technically called Elimination Final 2, but it was the first one played. I don't know if details there really matter with this. But here we go, though. Richmond were 13-8-1 in the home and away season. Bit of a circuitous route to get there. They ended up in 7th at 121.6%. They had the 4th best percentage, only behind Geelong, Melbourne, and Sydney, which tells you something about the type of games they won and lost. Well, early in the season, they just had trouble stringing together wins to begin with. They lost four of their first six, and we pulled out the Are You Screwdometer for them. I thought that they were going to be able to get things together, and it really wasn't a matter of the schedule getting all that easier for them, more that they just ended up finding themselves going towards the bye. I think having such an easy opponent as West Coast definitely did help on that front, but they strung together four wins in a row, and Collingwood was one of those. They ended up at 500 going into the bye after losing a heartbreaker to Sydney. At that point, one of the games of the year. And Richmond were on the wrong end of a lot of close ones this year. In fact, their smallest margin of victory this year was 7 points, and they were 0-5-1 in games decided by a single goal. And all of those close losses came from round 11 onwards. The aforementioned loss to Sydney losing to Geelong in what probably was the second best or best home and away game of the year. I'd say best. I think you could argue between that and a few others, actually. And this is a Geelong win, but I think you could make a case for any of the three games that ended with a goal after the siren. I think, really, you could give it more to showdown or that Collingwood-Essendon game. Or Melbourne-Carlton round 22. Collingwood-Carlton round 23 is up there as well. Collingwood-Carlton round 11, but... I really rank this Richmond-Geelong game really highly for a lot of dramatic reasons within the game itself. That loss came after they seemed to right the ship, beating Port Adelaide and Carlton, both in Melbourne. But that Geelong game started what, in hindsight, really feels like their worst stretch of the season, or at least the stretch where they underperformed in terms of our expectations for them at that point. After the Eagles played them surprisingly tough for a while, Richmond ended up pulling away and winning by 35. They lost after the siren to the Suns, and holy shit, you let North beat you. And it was a case where, yes, they let them beat him. The amount of easy shots the Tigers missed in that game was just unbelievable. They kicked 11-22 for the match. They kicked 22 behinds. North Melbourne had 22 scoring shots. I remember just following the game as my dad and I were driving up to Oregon and just being shocked by the amount of shots that Richmond were missing. Nothing else at that time because wasn't able to get 
consistent streaming quality going up Interstate 5. And it was easy shots they were missing. Hmm, seems like a common thread when one of your players is Tom Lynch, his mortal enemy, huh? Seemed to prove us right again this past week. Oh yeah, and after those two losses to the Suns and Kangaroos, they drew with Fremantle. The only draw of the season, and it came in a pretty weird fashion with Noah Cumberland playing on. He could have had a kick after the siren where he only needed a behind. You could chalk that up as a rookie mistake, but... That three-match stretch, really, against the Suns, Ruse, and Dockers, I thought defined Richmond's season in a lot of ways. They should have had 12 points out of that stretch, and they got two. And in that stretch, a lot of their positives came from their younger group. We talked about Cumberland having a really negative moment there with costing them two points, but he emerged as a really solid goal kicker over those games. We saw increasingly strong performances from Morris Real Lee Jr., Josh Gibkiss began to really come into his own as a defender. Hugo Ralph Smith had started the year hot, faded a bit down the stretch, but I really liked what I saw from him. Tyler Sonzi finished the year strong. Really, Richmond did a good job bridging the gap between the older and younger group, and they showed that you can do this without needing to undergo a full rebuild. It's better for some teams to undergo full rebuilds, <coughs> but Richmond don't need that just yet. Ralph Smith exemplifies a lot of things that Richmond have going for them and a lot of things that they've already been doing, prioritizing speed with the ball, forward pressure and intercepts, not always having the cleanest plays, but still managing to get the ball forward, get a really good amount of time in their half. And also the fact that Ralph Smith can play so many different places on the ground. We talked about this multiple times during the year about how They have so many players that they can just shift around because it wasn't Damian Hardwick throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck. It was that a lot of these players can play in both halves of the field in both 50s. Someone like Noah Balta in that respect with his marking and kicking abilities. Ralph Smith running pretty much anywhere he wants. Liam Baker perhaps being the most versatile of the entire Tigers list. I would say Balta is the most versatile, but Baker gets some consideration. It's kind of like a slide puzzle, you know, all these pieces that can go together and you just have to figure out the best way to deploy them. And it makes selection through injuries really easy because you can really just pick your best 22 and then kind of place the pieces as you need. It was interesting, though, seeing which players were in and out of favor for selection at certain times of year. Ralph Smith was in early, not as much down the stretch. Perhaps it was more of a developmental move there. Yvonne Soto started out the year as their backup ruck, and that ended up trending toward Ben Miller down the stretch. Overall, I think big picture, this season is a positive for Richmond, even with finals lost to the Lions, so long as they can show that they actually can win close games. If the Tigers can win one of their first two close games next year, or two of their first three or whatever, then we'll be able to just write that off as an anomaly rather than something that's going to stick with this group. And remember, they did what they did while dealing with some longer-term outs this year. Kane Lambert had a hip injury that limited him and eventually forced his retirement. Dustin Martin was on leave rounds two through seven, injured his hamstring in round 14, and then re-aggravated in round 16, wasn't seen again until the elimination final, and he may have been only about 80% then. Dylan Grimes was out rounds three through six, 
and was subbed off round 20, and that was the last of his season. So the injury bug definitely did catch up to them, not as much as last year, but enough for a finals contender to significantly disrupt them. But Trent Cotchin is going to be back. Jack Revolt's going to be back. Dustin Martin, we think he'll be staying on for another year. The fact that this year was more about the rise of the younger side of Richmond's list does point toward the lack of a strong need for a rebuild yet, I agree. I'm not sure if we'll be saying the same in the next couple of years, and I'm not sure what we'll have to say about where Damian Hardwick lies in all of this, because we were surprised by the lack of discipline from the Tigers at times this year. That was another big contributing factor in those close losses. I still think Hardwick's a damn good coach, but also, holy shit, he whines a lot. His comments a couple times on officiating this year, and then most recently, you know, talking about the score review on the Tom Lynch behind late in the game against the Lions, saying, you know, it cost us millions and millions of dollars. It cost people jobs. They took your job. They took your job. They took your job. I'd like to see the paperwork. You know, it's not like it cost you a home final. So I think that part of it makes no sense. Could it cost the club a lot of money? Possible. But I don't think anyone's job is affected by this, other than that Adam Kingsley is able to get started earlier with GWS. The raid on Richmond assistance continues. It was truck, then it was fly. Now it's Kingsley. Oh, they took our jibs! They took your jibs! They took your jibs! We each like pointing out one player that exceeded our expectations that we had for them this year and one player that underperformed tends to be the extremes, you know, huge positive, huge negative. And I could definitely point to a couple of those in either direction for Richmond. So, Ethan, who's your big positive? There are a lot of choices I could go with for the positive with that theme of young players breaking out. But I'm going to go with Morris Rioli Jr., because he's been so entertaining to watch. Just the story of him playing in the Dreamtime match was so cool by itself, but then there was a stretch for a few weeks where he was either the medical sub or playing the VFL, and I think he's cemented his place in an AFL lineup for good with the way he finished this year. I actually want to stick with the Rioli theme for my positive, because... Daniel's seamless move to halfback is perhaps the most impressive positional change from year to year that we've seen in our time watching the game so far. He's always been a pretty natural long kick, and it's now a role where he's been able to use his speed to his advantage. And I'm surprised we hadn't talked about it yet, but with how crowded the forward lines are for the Tigers, being able to swing Daniel Rioli further back does a lot in, again, making sure that they have their best 22 out there at all times. Marlon Pickett also transitioned well to that role in the back. And I also want to say that I didn't realize until this year just how important Dion Prestia is, because my eyes logically have always been on Dustin Martin because he's that marquee player. But Prestia's stoppage work makes him perhaps the most important player out of that entire midfield group for Richmond, especially now that Dusty in his limited time, was swung toward full forward. I just want to go back and add on, there were a few other young players that I could have gone with. I was kind of saving those in case you wanted to, but yeah, Tyler Sonsi, especially towards the end of the year, Hugo Ralph Smith, Josh Gibkiss. Noah Cumberland coming out of 
kind of nowhere to kick multiple goals in pretty much every game. And being a factor in that win against the Lions in the home and away season must have felt amazing for him, considering he was in their academy and they declined to match Richmond's bid for him. My negative for the Tigers is a pretty easy pick, I think. He was a common theme in a couple of those close losses with missing some shots he should have taken care of and was just quiet throughout the season in general, that being Jason Castagna. I thought of him as a guy who could, you know, every now and then go out and get you a four, five goal game, and his contributions this year were almost exclusively negative. It was a really disappointing season for him. The play that stands out to me the most isn't just a missed shot, but Charlie Ballard being able to get to him and stop him from putting away that Suns game, which they eventually had get away from them altogether. Oh, yeah. And it was a guy that grew up a Tigers fan that sunk their ship, Noah Anderson. Benjamin, who is your negative contributor for the Tigers? I guess I'd say Yvonne Soldo disappointed me because at the start of the season, he was doing all right for himself in terms of getting okay shots for himself. He's not the cleanest kick toward goal, but there was plenty of reason for him to be left out in the middle rounds, and he wasn't ever able to regain that spot. It's been great for Ben Miller that he's got a bit to go before he catches up to the best form that Soldo had, but it's going to be hard, I think, for Yvonne to find himself on the good side of selection again for a while. I think in order for him to get back in, he might need to really use his body in ruck contests, specifically his gigantic nose. Okay, that's a little out of pocket. I mean, he does have that sort of similar body build, not necessarily talking about nose here, but he and Toby Nankurs do have that similar just big body type thing going for them that's just able to overpower other Ruckman on occasion. Ned Curvis, by the way, made some pretty spectacular plays in the season that are likely going unrecognized by a lot of people. Had two goals that we thought should have won goal of the round. Neither of them did. One wasn't even nominated. I had mentioned that the Tigers are likely to bring in Tim Taranto. Jacob Hopper may be heading that way as well. He had been connected with Geelong for a while, but more recent rumors place him alongside Taranto at Punt Road. So more midfield half-forward depth there. I think some people might be forgetting the kind of player that Taranto has been the past couple years when he hasn't been out concussed. His 2021 was a big factor in the Giants making finals. It's also easy to forget about him because the Giants were so damn boring most of the year. Even when Mark McVay came in and spiced things up by doing something different, the Giants just didn't play in close games until the final couple rounds. But we already talked about the Giants, so go through our So You Didn't Crack the Eight to hear us talk about that. It's time to move on to the other team that bowed out in the elimination finals. Well, they didn't really bow out as much as they were trampled and then their lifeless body dragged off stage. Would it be fair to compare the way that final went for the Bulldogs to kind of Plankton's arc in the Spongebob movie where everything's going great for a while and then he ends up trampled? I guess the dogs may do without the brainwashing because I don't think anybody was brainwashed into thinking that they were this amazing team of destiny. I'm also not sure what their plan Z would have been. They had a plan Z. They had a plan B in the first place. I mean, actually, they were able to deal with some shuffling of lists with a couple injuries and also Bailey Smith doing a drugs and also doing a headbutts. 
Hey, Baz, don't forget, you dropped your wallet. It's not my wallet. The Bulldogs finished 12-10 and 10 in 8th. Their percentage sat at 108.9. They made the finals by about 0.542%. Their percentage was also 8th. It was better than Collingwood, but not as good as Port Adelaide. Remember, despite finishing in 11th, Port Adelaide had the 7th best percentage. So the Bulldogs started 2-4. and four. They were 3-5. and five. They didn't win consecutive games until rounds 9 through 11. The RU Screwdometer came out multiple times for them as well. It was early in the season when I established this trend of they play well when their backs are up against the wall and when they're in a must-win situation, and they turn it on when they need to win. You know, after starting 0-2 with losses to Melbourne and Carlton, they beat Sydney, laid an egg against Richmond, took care of North on... Good Friday, as they always do. That Sydney game had some horrific goal kicking. One of the most inaccurate games of the year. It was a hard one to watch. It was a Thursday nighter. The Bulldogs actually played the round opener each of the first three rounds. They got all sorts of weeknight time. Six of the Bulldogs' first nine games were a Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Eleven of their 22 games in all were Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. So I think everyone got a pretty good chance to watch them without having to worry about other games going on. In round six, poor kicking, which could be at least partially blamed on wind, doomed them to a one-point loss to the Crows in Ballarat. They lost at the Adelaide Oval in round eight, and you start to think, all right, Port Adelaide might really be doing something here. Then the dogs really turned it on and handed Collingwood a 48-point beatdown. As it would turn out, that was the last time Collingwood lost until round 22. That Collingwood win started a three-game streak. They had a win over the Suns. It was a match that I was really excited to watch. But their comeback bid against the Caps fell short in round 12. In the second half of the season, they took care of non-finals opponents. And other than a surprising win over the Demons in round 19, they could only beat teams that failed to make finals. We established the trend that Luke Beveridge cannot make in-game adjustments, and that proved itself again in this elimination final loss to the Dockers, where they pissed away a 42-1 lead. My beliefs about this team are that they have high-end talent, and lots of it, but not a lot of depth contributors, and Luke Beveridge is just not a very good in-game coach. I think he's one of the most charismatic coaches. I think his press conferences are must-see TV. I think he'd be great as a media member rather than as a coach. I would love to see him in studio or as a boundary writer or as a broadcaster. I think he's miscast as a coach. And it's kind of amazing that he won a grand final in the first place. The Bulldogs have never finished in the top four in Beverage's eight years. They finished between fifth and eighth six times, but they've been bounced out in the elimination finals now four times. You call them kind of Cincinnati Bengals-like with that surprising run to the grand final out of nowhere last year. We'll note the Bulldogs split the games that Bailey Smith missed. They lost the two during his headbutt suspension, and they won the two from his coke suspension. Yeah, that was quite the story there, and we were very quick to jump on it. Maybe the key is don't headbutt people, but do some bumps. Everybody's saying the bump is dead in the AFL, as like I said otherwise. I think this year helped establish and cement Tim English's role as a top-tier Ruckman and just overall player. He's one of those guys who can play anywhere on the ground and make an impact. I think we saw it especially in a defensive role, but he's pretty tireless, can play anywhere, 
can match up with anyone. At the same time, he missed a couple games from concussion, thanks Braden Pruce. When he was out the first time, which wasn't for Pruce then, Stefan Martin did a good job stepping in in that role, but he wasn't able to do that the second time around for whatever reason. So the Bulldogs need to definitely beef up in the Ruck department in that sense. So maybe that's one of the reasons they've been so keen on looking to get Rory Lobb from Fremantle to provide English some support in that sense. Honestly, I would think Lloyd Meek would be a great spot there because as much as we've hyped up Meek, his performance against GWS was kind of like, okay, maybe that's why he's not playing all the time. But if he's your secondary option, you could do a lot worse. And I think he'd be cast appropriately if the Bulldogs pursued him. A lot of the year for the Dogs seemed to be about getting that right group together in the forward line. You had Marcus Bonapelli starting to go to full forward relatively frequently, a move that we didn't expect in the slightest. But when you've got such strong possession getters like Jack McRae, Bailey Smith when he's in, Josh Dunkley a lot of the year, even though he's likely on his way out to port, Adam Trelore, who could play in all three-thirds of the field as well. It wasn't imperative for Bontepelli to be on the ball as much. However, as Craig Wessels from Yank on the Footy mentioned to you, I believe, Ethan in particular, you could tell that the Bulldogs were looking for a permanent solution to move on from Josh Bruce because they were trying to get somebody to play similarly enough to him so that his ACL recovery wouldn't hurt them as much. And they weren't ever able to really solve that issue. And when Bruce came back, he was omitted twice, including for the elimination final. I'll say that Sam Darcy being able to go forward and be a strong, tall mark definitely helped alleviate some of the pain of Bruce not being there. And maybe Jamari Hagen can sort of become a Bruce-like player as well, although he's got his definite uses. I think of Jamara more as a goal sneak, small forward type regardless of his body type. So I think if you had to ask him to be Josh Bruce, you'd be trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. I agree with that, but you could tell that they were trying to kind of shoehorn him in there at times. But look at how he played when he did his best work, that five-goal haul against Melbourne round 19. He spent a lot of time very close to the goal square, did, of course, take those pocket marks as well, but had some flexibility in where he was positioned in the 50. That it took this long to get him into a stable role was one of the more frustrating aspects of the Bulldogs season. He's he's a number one overall pick. That's not the sort of guy that you should be shuttling between the AFL and VFL. And I'm looking at this coming from kind of the baseball lens where if you shuttle a top draft pick between AAA and the majors, he's just never going to get comfortable and adjust. For those of you that follow baseball, the Orioles did it with Kevin Gosman and kind of wasted him. And Jamara finally, once he got back in the lineup in round 14, he really established himself as a, no, I'm going to be here every week now. And it shouldn't have been preceded by all of this back and forth stuff. I think it really hindered his development. And I think it's a cautionary tale when you're dealing with a guy who's, you know, trying to come into his own. You either let him do it in the VFL or let him do it in the AFL instead of have him kind of as a tweener. That's not the sort of player you do that with. Now that he's in the AFL to stay, when you also consider that it was a less productive year for Cody Waitman, in a lot of ways, especially once he dislocated his elbow, once you're realizing that they were trying to figure out how to manage 
Aaron Naughton's role amidst all this. It's safe to say the Bulldogs have the forward two-thirds figured out at this point, really, I'd say, in terms of their top-end talent at very at the very least. And looking further back, we knew about Caleb Daniel coming into the season, and Richards was a pleasant surprise for us with the steps forward he took in his development. They're still lacking in the tall defender department, which is why English had to go back there a decent amount. Alex Keith tended to hold his own more toward the back of the year. And I was really happy that friend of Cal basketball player Kwani Kwani Bukukamas started getting more and more defensive time because that seemed like a more natural spot for him. Not that he was bad as a forward, but he kind of was hot and cold, had some games where he'd be really authoritative and games where you'd hardly notice him. I would say the best plan with him moving forward would be have him as a defender primarily. And if you were ever thin up front or just needed to send someone forward for, you know, a late push, he'd be a guy to do that. So kind of a reverse of what Frio are doing with Griffin Logue now? I was thinking more like what Geelong have Jack Henry do, except with a completely different body type. I was thinking Logue would be a more accurate comparison because of the body type. Nah, because Logue... You can see him on the wing sometimes. You can see him in so many different spots. Hey, Logan Thomas did have minimal ruck time each of them this year, too. So you never know. I just think this team has the pieces to be so much better than consistently sitting between fifth and eighth. And yes, they were dealt a tough hand this year at times, not just with injuries, but catching teams at the wrong time. You know, there are only so many things you can control. Facing Carlton in round two did not help them. That was right when the Blues were coming onto the scene hot. Nothing wrong with losing that game. Facing Port Adelaide in round eight as they were starting to get their shit together. Another one, wrong place, wrong time. And look, if you throw in those eight points, if you just catch those teams on a better day, that still only elevates you from eighth to seventh. You could also talk about, you know, the grand final loss hangover if you think that's a thing, but... I don't think that was too much of a factor here. I just, there's too much talent here for this to happen. Although I will say, you know, their top 10, 12 guys are really good. And then there is a pretty steep drop off. And the fact that we can remember distinctly how many times they've had a depth piece really cash in and carry them really says something. I was really impressed with Wiley Garcia against the Demons in round 19. He and Jamar Hugo-Hagen combined won them that game. And then the other one was Rourke Smith in round 23 against Hawthorne when he bagged three goals. Speaking of Hawthorne performances, there was Riley West in their first game against Hawthorne. That one had a real crazy swing to it. And West kicked seven goals in three rounds and then cooled off. That said, there were a lot of games where Hawthorne got off to a really hot start and then couldn't sustain it. So we've talked about things like that. I'm not going to get too detailed on that one. Fact of the matter is, for nearly all the Bulldogs wins, it was because the top pieces carried them. Now, there were a couple guys who I had never really thought of as such top pieces that I'll get to in a bit when we go to our pleasant surprises and disappointments and things like that. But the difference between a team like the Bulldogs and a team like the Swans or Cats is... The Bulldogs don't have a Dane Rampey or a Robbie Fox or a Jake Lloyd or a Tom Atkins, a guy that might not be the best player, but can step up and make contributions when needed. And that's the thing that takes a team over the edge. Because look, every team that you're trying to beat in a final is going to have their Bontempelli, their Tim English, their Trelore, their Bailey Smith. 
you've got to have the Tom Atkins types in order to win finals. And you've got to have the Tom Atkins types and the Jake Lloyd types and the Dane Rampey types in order to beat those good teams in the first place. And when you don't have that, that's the difference between being fifth through eighth and being in the top four. Benjamin, you're going to go first this time. Give me your positive and your negative for the Bulldogs. Before we do that, how the fuck have we not mentioned Tom Liberatore? I think it's just one of those things where we've kind of accepted him and we know what he is at this point. And what he is, is maybe their best clearance player. And a really good physical tackler as well. He was definitely missed against Frio. And while I still don't think they would have been able to make enough adjustments because they don't make adjustments, having his ability to drop the hammer and just tackle the shit out of a guy can really help when you're giving up three goals in a row. The tackling, the clearances, the kick into the 50. He had played all 22 games this season and that was ruled out with a hamstring injury. And see, that's another thing that fits along that concept of there was some shit that just didn't go their way this year. I had previously highlighted Ed Richards as one of my biggest positives, and I'm going to label him as my one plus here because I knew that he had been a rising star nominee. I just hadn't thought of him as someone who could pair so well with Caleb Daniel back there. You know, he's not super tall. He's 6'1", but he's fearless back there to get into marking contests. He was more of an active handball than Daniel was because we see Daniel as more of a kicking along the back pockets role and more and more of the possessions from defense for the Bulldogs start to go through Richards than through Daniel this year. And that's a great step for him. Who's your biggest positive? I'm going with Bailey Dale. He was an All-Australian last year, but I just think this year when we looked at big numbers for the dogs and big stats, he was there just about every game. And he was just someone I hadn't given much thought to before this year. And I think between seeing them play so many Thursday and Friday games and really doing a deeper dive on these things, I just gained more appreciation for his ability. When you're the one that gets the tag a lot of the time, that's a sign of respect. And Dale was tagged a number of times this year. He's also able to put the tag on pretty decently as well. So interesting that he goes both ways in that sense. Getting tagged when your teammates with Marcus Bonimpelli, Bailey Smith, Tim English, Adam Trelore, that's a serious sign of respect. Finn McGinnis did go to Bailey Smith in round 23, though. Not sure what the reason was for that, but I trust Sam Mitchell. I don't care that Luke Beveridge has a Jock McHale medal. Sam Mitchell's the better coach. That's not even up for discussion. What is up for discussion is who you pick as your negative this year for the dogs. And I'm going to go first with a guy that we touched on briefly, Stefan Martin. You know, he was in and out of the lineup. He did okay filling in for English the first time around, did really poorly the second time around. He should be able to answer that question where you don't even need to consider shopping for another Ruckman, and he was just very quiet and disappointing this year, and that's part of the lack of depth pieces. You know, he's a guy who we thought, or at least I thought, could be a number one Ruckman on a lot of teams, and he couldn't even fill that number two role, so I thought it was a really disappointing year for him. He had started out well, as I'd said before, and then just couldn't do it again when called upon later in the season. You talked about Ryan Gardner a few times as of late, Comparing him to Indian food, you call Ryan Tika Masala Gardner, where 
when he's good, it when he's good, it's you know easy for him easy for him to play in a couple different roles, mixes well with other things, but when he's bad, it's really noticeable and there's not much of an in-between. And that lack of consistency for Gardner when he played all 22 games definitely did come back to hurt the dogs at times this year. He was one of the sour spots in the elimination final as well. Before we wrap up talking about the Bulldogs, I do want to say one other positive contributor, although his role ended up being a bit marginal and his season got cut a bit short by injury was Mitch Wallace. Just someone I've really liked. He was one of the first players I noticed on the Dogs. And it's nice that he's leveraged himself back into a role where he's up for selection every week. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Don't forget, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. That's where you can get our live reactions, some shit posting as well. You can find me personally at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. You can find me at BenjaminHK01. That's BenjaminHK with a K. And you can find Brian Harambe currently under the bed. He likes it down there. Yeah, ever since Ethan got his new bed frame, Brian's able to move around down there pretty easily. And he's very playful when he's in here. It's kind of weird. He's on Instagram, a cat named Brian. So maybe you'll be able to see some of that side of him over there. We're probably already through the bulk of this episode because we took a long time with those post-mortems, and uh, we've only got two games to cover. We start with the second semifinal. I like how all of these are individually named. Melbourne hosting Brisbane at the MCG, the second-seeded Demons, the sixth-seeded Lions. This one will get underway on Friday, September 9th at 2.50 a.m. Pacific Time. 5.50 a.m. Eastern Time, if you're among the lucky ones actually in Victoria, 7.50 p.m. And in Queensland as well, because Daylight Savings hasn't ended yet. You guys call it Daylight Savings or Summertime? I think it's Daylight. Both games this round will be on Fox Sports 1 for American viewers. Hopefully we'll get some folks on the East Coast waking up and starting to discover this incredible game. going to be a little tougher to sell to people on the West Coast unless they keep really weird hours. Hi. We do that. I guess both these teams are now 16 and 7. Melbourne finished the home and away season in second at 16 and 6. The reason they were ahead of the Swans on percentage and hosted the qualifying final last round was because they more than doubled up the Lions in round 23. That caused Brisbane to slip to sixth. They actually exceeded doubling the Lions up in both meetings, 117-53 to in round 15 of the G, 115-57 to in round 23 at the GABA. Some major I-shaved-my-balls-for-this energy. Both of those games, Melbourne went to their pressure-first approach, and it was the right call from the beginning. They absolutely gave the Lions the business both times. He was giving them the business. Including the qualifying final in 2021, Melbourne have won four straight meetings, but they're going in this one with some big-time injury scares. Christian Petraka is the biggest concern out of the group. He has a hairline fracture in his fibula, 
he's likely good to go, despite those injuries he suffered, likely in contests against Buddy Franklin, of all people, was trying to bump him, and that did not go well. As of now, Petraka and Charlie Spargo are likely to play, even though Spargo might not be able to talk. He took an elbow to the throat late last game. I guess we'll find out once and for all if teamwork is the thing that talks. By the way, I just came up with this idea. One of our episodes we're going to do this offseason, we're going to fact check each club song, figure out, you know, what parts of them are true or can be proven or disproven. So stay tuned for that. One of those ideas I came up with in the shower because you come up with good ideas in the shower. Our slash shower thoughts exists for a reason. I come up with my best ideas when I'm out exercising, actually. That's when I've taken a lot of notes for these round previews. Assuming the situation remains as is where Petraka and Spargo are able to play, the Demons might be pretty much unchanged from last week. The Lions will definitely have some changes. First off, with Oscar McInerney out concussed, though he is progressing well, so it's really he's just got to get through the 12 days from what we can tell. That spot will almost certainly go to Darcy Fort. He and Dan McStay would thus be splitting time there. McStay was crucial to full oval success last week for the Lions. You can tell how much it's going to hurt that they're losing him. I know Lockie Neal racked up the coaches' votes like crazy, but through the lens that I watch the game, total outsider perspective, but I thought McStay was the most important piece for the Lions in terms of the role he took on after McInerney went down. McStay only got two coaches' votes and... That's a bit rough. The Lions will be getting Noah Answorth and Cam Rayner back from their suspensions. Seems like one of the obvious outs there would be Mitch Robinson, who was hardly noticed last week other than a pretty reckless play. And also after the game when he was soaking everything in, knowing that that was his last game at the Gabba in Maroon. The other one, though, is a question. I mean, in theory, there's a world in which Answorth doesn't even get back in. But Michael Whiting on AFL.com says that Jackson Pryor is a hard luck out with Darcy Wilmot staying in. Wilmot fit in with some of the other younger pieces in terms of the run that he provided out of halfback, kind of having a Zach Bailey-like role at times. Definitely a bit of an aggressor, can see how he kind of follows after Mitch Robinson in that sense. The commentators were saying that he might be even more of that than Robinson is. Loved watching him pump up the crowd as he was going to the bench after kicking his first goal. I still don't get why players so quickly go to the bench after kicking goals most of the time. Obviously, the Demons have crapped on the Lions both times this year. You know, in American sports, at least, there's this bullshit idea that oh, it's hard to beat the same team three times. That stems from a couple of particular NFL playoff upsets. But the fact is, if you've beaten a team twice, you're usually better than them. And when you've beaten them so convincingly, that reinforces it. It's different if, you know, you tough out two close wins over a team. But neither of these games were ever in doubt. They were both over by halftime. In turn, the Demons are favored by 18 and a half. I just want to take a step back and look at this game through the lens of a Geelong fan, knowing that we'll be facing the winner. And look, whoever you're going to be facing is going to be coming in hot off a win over a good team. That's kind of inevitable in the finals. But logically, I would say I'd rather play the Lions. 
But also, if you're playing the Lions, that means they'll have gotten over their MCG skid. So that actually kind of worries me. It's like once a team breaks through the ceiling, it's hard to stop them. We saw it with the Washington Nationals in 2019. They were 19 and 31. Granted, they haven't done jack shit since then, but that's a completely separate point. We saw it with the Atlanta Braves last year. It's like once they win one series, look out, here they fucking go. And I would be worried about the Lions because if they can show they can win one at the MCG, who's to say they wouldn't be able to win a couple more? I expect James Harms to be highlighted in this game. I expect he'll be going to Lockheed Neal once again. Harms is Melbourne's tagger. He is certainly an aggressor. He was reported last game for contact on Jake Lloyd, but got off with a fine. So let's see how civil that matchup against Lockheed Neal is. If Neal is tagged, though, you still got to worry about Hugh McCluggage, who has become a stronger goal kicker as the year has gone on. You got to worry about Bailey and Rayner. There are plenty of smaller stature players for Brisbane who can get runs through the middle. The thing that has kept them from keeping games close against the D's this year, though, has been getting the right connections into the forward 50 because Stephen May has been there. Jake Lever's been there. Dane Zorko showed that they can make those connections, though. If you watched the game against Richmond, his ability to kick from right in the middle of the ground into the forward 50 was nuts. I was blown away by it on multiple occasions. Speaking of Dane Zorko, Harrison Petty also played pretty well in that matchup a few weeks ago as well. And uh, ah, that's going to be interesting seeing the reception Zorko gets. Going to be fun to follow that little subplot. The other thing that makes this such a bad matchup for the Lions, I think, how many times have we seen the Demons go on a run where they go, you know, Clearance goal, clearance goal, clearance goal. And then how many times have we seen the Lions just completely collapse and crumble when that happens to them? That didn't happen last round. They didn't ever concede a run of three goals. And that's why they were able to keep themselves together. Their spirits were never broken because it was that back and forth game. 17 lead changes. Melbourne got one center clearance goal last round, but they weren't able to string them together. So the winner of the second semifinal gets the winner of the first qualifying final. I like how that sort of crossing over happens, allows for more matchups. It means that you also can't get a repeat matchup until the grand final, which I think is proper. We haven't had a repeat matchup in the grand final since 2018. I thought we were going to get it in 2020. My predictions then had the Tigers losing to the Lions the first time around and then beating them on the second go around. I think I had their meeting with Geelong correct. What I do know about the first semifinal this year is that it's been sold out. When does that happen for a Victorian team against an interstate team? I guess maybe when it's Collingwood. Collingwood will be taking on Fremantle at the MCG Saturday night, 7.25 p.m., It'll be Saturday morning at 2.25 a.m. for those of us on the West Coast, which is convenient for me because I'll be all done with high school football stuff by then. Trying to balance that this past week was a real bitch. It'll be 5.25 a.m. on the East Coast of the U.S. And if you're in Western Australia, whether you're a Dockers fan, a Pies fan, just a footy fan, that is a 5.25 p.m. start. So very convenient timing if you want to go out and do something fun after the game. As we already mentioned, both these semifinals will be on Fox Sports 1. 
By the way, I do just want to throw this in real quick. What we call a semifinal is what you guys call a preliminary final. This would probably be sort of a quarterfinal. Because we don't have the double chance at anything and it's just straight single elimination, it's hard to say what exactly it would be. Yeah, and a quarterfinal is usually to go from eight down to four, and this is going from six to four, but I can tell you that a semifinal is to get from four to two in our world. Maybe it's just one of those things, you know, your toilets don't flush the same way. What we call a semifinal, you call a preliminary final. Apparently, you call cantaloupes rock melons. You call peppers capsicum. You say Nike instead of Nike. What else is new? Anyway, Collingwood are the four seed, Fremantle are the five seed. With their loss this past week, the Pies have actually lost two of their last three games. If you include their home and away record, 16 and 7. I know that's not really relevant, but I had it listed here just because of the format in which we had our game previews listed. Fremantle, with their win, are 16, 6, and 1. So they actually have a superior record to the Pies for the entire season now but they will be the ones going on the road here. And the biggest reason for that, you can chalk it directly up to a head-to-head loss. These teams met in round 10 at Optus Stadium, a game where the Dockers really didn't show up at all and because, you know, it was raining. They lost 80-44, to and it was probably their most pathetic performance of the year. More pathetic than their loss to the Gold Coast Suns? I don't know. I think just... They were at home. This was a big game for them, and they just completely flopped. But they're cotton candy. They melt as soon as they get wet. They've got a chance for redemption here. But it's worth looking at the forecast. And what do you know? There is some rain in the forecast, although it's listed as just showers and should be out of the way before the evening. Are they going to have to reinforce one of the goalposts like they did in Perth? It looks like there's going to be rain kind of throughout the day Friday and up until mid-afternoon Saturday, if the current forecast is to be believed, but could mean a wet ground, although conditions really were never a huge factor in any of the finals this past week. The only place we saw anyone really slipping on ground was the GABA, and conditions have actually looked pretty good in Brisbane for once, so hopefully weather's not a factor. I just, in what's kind of supposed to be a neutral-ish final, even though Collingwood's decidedly the home team. I would like it for weather to not be a factor, kind of like how the Super Bowl is typically scheduled at locations where either you're indoors or rain likely isn't going to be a factor. Just generally in warm weather locations, if it's not a dome, and then there's the one time they put it outdoors in East Rutherford. That was just cold and slightly damp. You know, they were hoping to get snow. They didn't get it. Snow football is fun. Snow footy basically never happens, though there was that one game in Canberra where it did, and they went nuts for it. I think that would be awesome, but what also has been awesome, how's this for a transition, is how the Dockers have played in Victoria this year. Five wins and a draw that was gifted to them. They did have that one loss to Carlton. I believe all of their games, except for the win over the Demons, which ended Melbourne's streak, were at Marvel and the one at Cardinia. So I think they've only played once at the MCG this year, but it obviously went pretty well when they did go there. So they've had no issues going on the road. This will definitely be the toughest crowd they've faced, if that's a factor at all. It's going to be, I would imagine, like 90% Collingwood, or maybe the, the only way it isn't a super pro Collingwood crowd is if you have 
a bunch of supporters of other clubs who decided to go and want to cheer against Collingwood, which is possible. Unfortunately, Collingwood will be going into this game without Taylor Adams, who re-aggravated and likely worsened the groin injury that he had near the end of the home and away season. You knew right away that it looked bad with how he went to the ground, just immediately put up his hand. Was a pretty touching story involving a young fan consoling him after the game, and I'm glad that he was able to contact those people and thank him for that. What really stood out to me from Adams last week before he got hurt was the amount of, like, one percenter plays he made, you know, tipping the kick from Tyson Stengel early. He had a few other really nice scrappy little plays that I don't know if that's necessarily the first thing you you think of when you think of Adams, but that really characterized his game this past week, and that's sort of what characterizes this Collingwood team in general. I think of Adams as a guy that tends to be one of the stabler parts of that midfield, especially now that Scott Pendlebury shifted more to halfback, more that responsibility has fallen on Adams. You know, he's capable of putting in those long kicks, but I often see him looking for guys that are on overlaps like Josh Dacos or Jordan Degoe. You know, it's funny. I see Jack Crisp kind of doing a lot of the stuff that you describe as kind of the link between the back and the front. I'd say Adams kind of serves as that going a bit more toward the forward 50, kind of like a hybrid midfield and half forward at times, like sometimes at the forward end of the center square doing some of that work. So kind of doing similar stuff to Crisp, but further up the ground. Yeah, which makes sense because Crisp began his career as a fullback. The aforementioned Jordan Degoe apparently had an AC joint issue, wasn't able to tell during the game. It definitely didn't seem to bother him in the fourth quarter. He played his ass off down the stretch. Had it not been for Gary Rowan doing his multiple goal-kicking thing, I would have thought that Degoe would have been the reason for Collingwood to end up winning it. So he's likely to play. Ash Johnson should be good to continue. Seemed to have a glute injury near the end of last game. Normally, if you have a cork in your butt, it just means you're constipated. Yeah, I wouldn't be sitting on the bench at the end of that. I'd be standing, but whatever. Hopefully, he's not crowning. I'd expect to see Finn McRae come back in for Adams. McRae was in round 23 a bit surprisingly, but he fits there as pretty versatile player in the midfield. You can tell where his game is similar to that of his half-brother Jack. And we may also see Nathan Kruger. Back in the 22, he was the medical sub and came on once Adams got injured. Felt like kind of a weird spot for him to be in. I would have expected someone more like McRae or Ollie Henry to be the sub. But with the struggles that Brody Mahachek has had as of late, and with the need for a taller forward presence to begin with, I can understand why Kruger could be back in for this one. My question is, how do you deploy him? You know, he's a big guy who can kind of play forward, back, wherever. Honestly, I would consider using him at times, maybe rotating different guys on Rory Lobb and including him in that rotation. Rotating guys on Lobb, it's somewhat easy to push around Giannis, so maybe one of those guys could end up working on him on the ground for a bit. Not exactly sure, but Collingwood were just lacking in tall targets near the end of last week's game because for some reason, Mason Cox was also on the bench. If they're wanting Cox to continue being the strong full-field contested mark he is, maybe you do park Kruger in the forward 50. On the Fremantle side of things, Justin Longmuir has already said Jai Amos will be selected again. Darcy Tucker injured his meniscus playing for Peel Thunder. 
probably going to have surgery for that. In fact, I think certainly going to have surgery for that. Matt Kaberner played limited minutes for the Thunder last week and should be available, but Nathan Schmuck on AFL.com doesn't think he gets selected and thinks the only change is going to be Neil Erasmus as the injury sub instead of Bailey Banfield. Collingwood are favored by 12 and a half, and while the Dockers did play one of their absolute worst games when they faced the Pies back in round 10, I can see why this is a matchup that favors Collingwood. Fremantle thrive on forcing mistakes out of opponents. And Collingwood don't have one particular area of their game that sticks out as being bad. You talked about it in our finals week one preview about how maybe when it comes to the different lines, they're perhaps the most evenly skilled team, at least out of the ones that's left. And also Collingwood can be very handball heavy at times. And so it's going to be tougher for Hayden Young to get involved in that sense to disrupt Keith Chapman's particularly strong in the air, and so he may not have as prominent of a role. A lot will definitely fall on Blake Akers once again. The biggest thing is that the Dockers thrive by picking apart other teams' mistakes, and Collingwood are very good at not beating themselves. And they win close games unless they're against Geelong. By default, I expect Collingwood by something like 7 or 8. I think the 12.5 line is pretty fair. I'd maybe bring it down by a point or two. But considering the result when they met in the home and away season, I get it. As do I. Well then, that's footy for the week. Or at least it will be. Feels weird to have this little to talk about in terms of previewing the actual games. But when you're this late in the season, everything's kind of laid out there for you already. If we talked about, or if you're a fan of one of the two teams that's sitting happily waiting to watch the chaos unfold, congratulations. And if your team season is already over, sucks for you. At least we've already talked about your teams again. We have those two So You Didn't Crack the Eight episodes. Those will be pretty good for any pre-trade period time that you want to go back and listen to that. And we'll have our thoughts on all sorts of trade news and whatever, along with the in-game action at Americans Footy on Twitter. If it's Eagles related, I may pitch in at BenjaminHK01 as well. I am at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is on Instagram, at cat named Brian. We are Americans. We watch the footy. You probably watch too if you're listening to us. We're looking forward to another great week of finals. I'm looking forward to, for the first time, enjoying this without having to worry about the cats playing. Let's have some great entertainment this week. I'd like to justify why I'm awake at 4 a.m. 4 a.m.? How about 5? I, I said 4 because it's in the middle of the games. And, you know, there's always a chance a game is so bad that around, like, 4.30 or so, I say, fuck this, I'm going to sleep. You certainly did for Melbourne and Brisbane round 23. I fear that matchup may put you to sleep again this time. I hope not. I just hope to be entertained. I care less about who wins and just more about the entertainment factor. And hopefully the teams beat up on each other to the point that whoever gets onto the field the following week is just so gassed that the Cats absolutely run them over. And then good luck to Collingwood or Fremantle because you got to go to Sydney. <laughs> Bye.